Welcome to Travels Free Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colograph. I'm Peter Moore. Today we're off to South America and into the very heart of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was an age of problem solving. How did the planets move? What was lightning? How far was the Earth from the Sun? Questions like these captivated figures like Newton, Franklin and Cook, as we all well know. Well, today's guest has written about a different Enlightenment puzzle in his new book, Latitude. We'll get onto that in a moment, but first of all, let me introduce Nicholas Crane. Crane is an award-winning writer, journalist and geographer. He's well known to most of us for presenting the BAFTA-winning BBC TV series, Coast. Now he's taking us back on a travel through time to be in with a chance of winning a copy of Crane's new book. Do make sure that you're signed up to our mailing list on our website. Otherwise, enjoy. Welcome to Travels Free Time, and thank you very, very much for coming on. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've given it quite a bit of thought, Peter. <laughs> okay, well, you've got quite a story, so we're going to hopefully enjoy this and make some good sense of it. But I thought I'd start off by pointing out a, a fact which I don't suppose we think about very much today, but it is uh, the fact that I am in London, and that is... 51 degrees north latitude. Can you tell me what latitude is, please? So uh, (laughs) if you imagine the Earth standing on on the South Pole, so South Pole at the bottom and North Pole at the top, lines of latitude are the lines that horizontally girdle the Earth at equal intervals, um, whereas lines of longitude are the ones that meet at the North Pole and South Pole and therefore they effectively they bend to allow for the curvature of the earth but lines of latitude are straight they go round and round. Mm. And why does it matter? Why do we why is it useful for us to know? Um, well essentially latitude and longitude are, are the, the, the means we've devised to create if you like an artificial grid that overlays the whole of the earth's surface that we use for navigation whether on land or on sea. So it really matters that that grid is incredibly accurate. Um, If ships are not going to run onto reefs, then they need to be able to set a compass at a port of departure. They need to be able to sail across an ocean and they need to arrive precisely where they're intended to on the far shore. If for any reason there are anomalies in the lines of longitude and latitude, then navigation will go awry on on, on the way. And the, 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 the complicating factor, which is related to this story in the 1730s, is that it was known at the time that Earth was not a perfect spheroid. It wasn't perfectly round. It was either stretched uh, towards the poles or it's flattened at the equator. So it was either oblate or, or prolate, as it's called. Um, And they didn't know for sure which it was. And so this expedition set off from Europe to the equator where they planned to measure the precise length of one degree of latitude. And then they were going to compare that result to the length of one degree of latitude 
in uh, the Northern Hemisphere, in the northern part of the Northern Hemisphere. They'd already measured it in France, so they're going to compare that figure with an equatorial figure. If the equatorial figure was shorter or longer, that would decide whether it's either oblate or prolate. Was this, I mean, well, there's, there's so much to analyse here. First of all, um, I'm going to go back to something you said a minute ago, which is um, about precision and how important that is. And particularly, this is in, in times gone by um, for ships at sea. And um, I'm sure lots of people will be thinking um, along with me about that problem of longitude. And there's this famous um, moment in Davis Abel's book um, that she wrote 25 years ago when there's a whole fleet which sails basically into the Scilly Isles because they do not know where they are. And so that's the problem of, of longitude. And I suppose for a long time, and this is probably my own ignorance, I thought that latitude was comparatively quite easy to work out. You could work out your latitude, but longitude was the place where the problem lay. And then I've I've come across this story of yours, which I have to admit I didn't know much about at all. And you realise that the there are these two parallel stories running side by side, the search for latitude and the problem of longitude. Is that correct? It's absolutely right. And uh, in fact, the, the, the search to resolve the latitude issue, as they called it, the true shape of the earth, predates John Harrison's quest to, to resolve the longitude question with his clocks, his accurate marine chronometers. So he, he his final payment... Um, the award he was given for successfully building that fifth clock was 1773, whereas the geodesic mission to the equator that set off from France and Spain to measure latitude, they left um, 40 odd years before then in 1735 to sail to the equator. So the latitude, they were, they were both uh, very pressing issues um, and resolving them both was incredibly complicated and difficult. And, and what fascinated me, I mean, I'm a great fan of Dava Sevel's book. It's absolutely brilliant. And, and she opens it with that, as you say, with the, with the wrecking of Sir Cloudsley Shovel's fleet in the Scilly Isles. And what a name. I can never, never forget that name as well. Yeah, I mean, it was catastrophic, wasn't it? And, um, but the latitude issue was both, it was both practical. It was about um, making navigation, uh, sea charts and maps more accurate. But there was also something much bigger going on, which was a there's there was a, a, a big argument, intellectual argument at the time between the followers of Descartes and Newton. Um, Newton produced a theory uh, that showed that the Earth was likely to be uh, oblate, that it was that it was squashed at the poles and was actually had a kind of fat waste because the interior of the Earth he hypothesized was liquid and the centrifugal force of Earth spinning was was throwing the weight outwards around the equator. Um, whereas Descartes um, thought that he had empirical evidence that um, the opposite was true and that Earth was sort of egg-shaped or rugby ball-shaped um, and that it tapered towards the poles. So there was a big intellectual argument going on. And paradoxically, you know, Descartes, the French, the great French thinker, um, working out of Paris was, a, was, was subsequently opposed by Newton working out of, out of England. But this expedition primarily was French, and yet they supported Newton's view. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, was this uh, an, an argument that had separated along national lines? It doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that there's um, a bit of intermixing here, because sometimes we fall into these uh, realms of scientific nationalism where the French believe one thing and the British might think another thing, and they send off their, their uh, respective um, expeditions to prove um, themselves correct. But that's not the case here, is it, really? 
Um, I, it's not exactly a yes and no answer. Um, I, I'll start by saying that actually, um, at the time, there, there, this was this was peak enlightenment, and what we have is a kind of worldwide web of scientific interchange, with great respect across national borders. So, for example, although the expedition was devised in the French Academy in the Louvre in Paris, um, at the time, the best manufacturers, the best instrument makers, the best makers of instruments were, were English in London. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, so the French had got used to, the, the academicians in Paris had got used to the idea that they really wanted accurate instrumentation. They'd have to go over to London and get the latest um, tools to do the work from London. So the English were needed uh, for science, um, although it's the French who are leading, leading the world, actually, in terms of thinking. Now, the, the Spanish component of the expedition does bring in a nationalistic element, if you like, because they, they left Europe with 10 Frenchmen and two Spaniards. Um, and the issue was that the, the most, the least, or I should say, the least inconvenient place to measure one degree of latitude on the equator was not Africa or, or, or Southeast Asia, it was, it was South America, which was then as a Spanish dominion, that most of the continents ruled by, by the Spanish, some by Portugal. Um, but the bit they needed to go to was entirely Spanish. But the Spanish said, we will not allow uh, a bunch of Frenchmen to go wandering for years on end around uh, our Spanish colonies in South America, where all of our bullion uh, ships uh, are congregating, ready to sail back to Europe, unless there are two Spaniards to keep an eye on them. So Seville deputised two, two Spanish uh, naval lieutenants very young, 19 and 22, who were, if you like, they were kind of special forces operatives almost. Although mm. they were very young, they're both, they were both seasoned war veterans. They're, they were very skilled seamen, very skilled navigators. And in many ways, they were far more able than the 10 Frenchmen they'd been sent to keep an eye on. So, mm. th- so th- there, was this, there was a nationalistic element. Um, the Spanish... Uh, the Spanish were eager to let the Frenchmen come to South America because they realised they were going to get some very accurate mapping out of it. Uh, the Frenchmen were going to share their, the results of their surveys. So Spain stood to win a lot of new scientific in, in, information about the, the one part of their empire that was producing unimaginable wealth, uh, silver mainly. Um, but also spices and, and, and all sorts of other uh, commodities that were being shipped back to uh, Europe, including quinine, which was the only known cure for malaria. So South America really mattered to Spain. Uh, and so they allowed this French expedition in on the, on the conditions that they took two crack Spanish lieutenants mm-hmm. with them. A, a team of tw- so that made 12 scientists, two Spanish, 10 French. And in effect, this was the world's first international scientific expedition. So when, when the expedition came back, they were the toast of Paris. Um, yeah. And Voltaire, who was a, a friend of one of the expedition members, La Condamine, he, uh, I don't know whether know Condide, but Condide, which was written several decades after the expedition returned, is a, is a wonderful novelised exploration of the follies of optimism, um, which is precisely <laughs> what this expedition is all about. And Condine has the, you know, the, the kind of the crowning moment in, in Voltaire's story is, is when, when the, the book's optimistically misguided hero 
um, runs into very serious trouble in the high Andes of South America in precisely the same way that the geodesic mission to the equator ha had done 40 years earlier. Um, so, so Voltaire used a lot of material from the expedition to, to enliven this, yeah. this really well-known well It was a real kind of cultural reference point for people at the time. I yeah, exactly. It was, Peter. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. It became a cultural reference point, exactly. And... Uh, uh, oddly enough, one of the most dangerous elements of the whole the whole expedition, which lasted for ten years, was was not so much the frostbite or getting robbed, both of which happened, but but the river crossings. Um, and if, any anyone who's done a lot of mountaineering or travelling through big wild country, and I, I've done sort of, I, I once walked from side to side across Europe on my own through the mountains and. And, and I've done a big trek in the Kush and Afghanistan and places. And actually in, in, in big mountains where you have a lot of snow melt, the real danger is not, is not frostbite or even avalanches, which you can predict, but getting swept away in, during river crossings. Um, river crossings are very scary um, mm. because there are very seldom bridges. And, so, and, and this, this was an era when uh, the, the scientists were, were traveling to remote mountain tops where they'd set up their survey stations. So frequently they were having to cross rivers that had no bridges. And of yeah. course, with snow melt and thaws in the spring, you had simply stupendous volumes of water. Um, yeah. Very scary. And I, and I think to me, of course, when you think of exploration in South America, the first person who springs to mind leaps to mind in fact would be alexander von humboldt but we're talking mm. about you know almost a century before i mean 80 years before or something like this this is mm. this is this is quite um a long way back but it is as you say a time when this idea of the surveyor um is uh really coming into it's kind of fashionable thing to be i suppose we have to remember that george washington trained as a surveyor not long after this it's kind mm. of how he started out so it was it was kind of a, a new and exciting profession so immensely exciting yeah um let's go to your year then we've touched on the voyage we've talked a little bit about the context of the history but i'm going to ask you the question now which hopefully will send us tumbling off uh into the past <laughs> if you could go back to a single year in the past which one would you pick this gave me a lot of strife peter because <laughs> the exhibition lasted for 10 years and any one of the years i just kept going you know choosing one year then thinking no i can't do that and another even better one so in the end i i, I went for 1739 okay. um so we are four years after they left europe let's just talk about 1739 in a broad sense before we go um just from from something you earlier earlier said this is high enlightenment and it might be just interesting for you to like kind of talk about the enlightenment as a as a moment in history and what people were trying to achieve then what was happening there's a, there's a wonderful flowering of intellectual curiosity which spread right across the humanities and the sciences and and it, and it manifested itself in many different ways um so in Paris, you had the, the French Academy of Sciences that was, it was the, the most prestigious organisation to belong to at the time. You had to be invited. There were different orders within it. You got promoted depending on your value as a scientist, although actually one of the members of this expedition managed to get promotion on <laughs> what were clearly false pretenses. I and mean, we ended up being the leader of the expedition completely disastrously. 
um, but that's another story. Um, in terms of the in terms of the the applied science, then it really was about um, exploring uh, gravity. Uh, it was about exploring metallurgy. Uh, there are a lot of new uh, minerals being discovered and and experimented with. Uh, mercury was a key. Uh, key element that was being used at the time and and was was known to exist in South America, and as of course was silver. Um, and during this expedition, they made the first um first European description of of rubber and uh, platinum. So there were it was it was an, the, the curiosity manifested itself right the way across the board from you know Voltaire's um, poems and novels to to the, the the hard science, the hard applied science that people like Newton and Huygens had had put forward. So um, this was this was by far the biggest um, Enlightenment scientific expedition that had ever ever sailed the seven seas. And they took with them from London the most advanced scientific instruments. So so the, the English responded um, with alacrity. I mean they were paid to provide the instruments, but these were these were cutting edge instruments um, that were going to be used in the high Andes in a way that had never been used before. And they took with them, um, and this this again is very much a kind of an enlightenment tick. They took with them their own instrument maker, a clock, a, a clock maker called Ugo. Oh, that's very interesting. And um, so he be he be of the, the twelve men that left Europe, you know, one of them was, if you like, um uh, well, he was a master craftsman, but he was he was he was the the geek, the the technology expert. He was the, the you know the, 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 the Q character. The Q character, you know, in an age of hardware, you know, he was he was he was the um he, he nowadays he'd be a software geek, but back then he was a hardware geek, and he found himself not just repairing barometers and quadrants and compasses and all of the the the, the equipment, the, the crates and crates of equipment they took from Europe, but towards the, the the tail end of the of the expedition after they'd completed the survey on the ground when they had to lock this great chain of virtual triangles to the sky to the to the stars in order to fix it um celestially he had to build um a horribly complicated uh instrument called a zenith zenith sector which measured the height of a star above um the horizon and um very complicated with immensely long 10, 12, 16 foot telescopes. Then this, this device was so big, you had to build a cons- uh, an observatory to house it in. So poor Ugo, you know, working in, in a little atelier in a workshop somewhere in Quito, was having to construct incredibly fragile, delicate, complicated scientific instruments. You know, when there wasn't enough, you know, he, he didn't have access to, you know, lots of copper and brass and, mm-hmm. and, and silver for welding. You know, all, all, all of these raw materials had to be gathered in. He had to be able to turn screw threads on a little lathe uh, or, or melt copper and brass, but forge iron. Uh, so he was, he was a key component of the whole expedition. I might also mention, you know, another kind of enlightenment specialist was, was of course, a map maker. Um, you couldn't run a, an expedition like this without having a professional map maker because uh, and for this, they had a, a very able um, a French marine uh, cartographer they brought from the port of Toulon. He was one of the elder, oldest people on the expedition, but very solid, very capable, had a track record in making accurate maps and charts. And one of the first jobs he had when they arrived in South America was to was to map 
this great central valley between the two chains of volcanoes that they were going to w spend the next few years working down. Because until they'd mapped the precise locations of the volcanoes, they couldn't start planning this survey. <laughs> so before they could even start, they had to make their own maps. So you can see it's a, it's a big, elaborate expedition. It is. And um, I mean, you describe right through the first portions of the book how arduous the journey is after they leave in 1735 and all the hardships that they encounter. There's strange animals, there's even stranger diseases, there's lots of bickering among um, the crew or the expedition members. And um, it's, you know, it all just kind of canters along in a in a way that you would imagine would combust at any moment, but it, it kind of doesn't. And, and we get to 1739, and I think now is the moment that you could take us to your first of uh, your three scenes, please. Yeah, so we have to imagine that um, it took them a year to get there. So by kind of mid-1736, they're on site in Quito. They then spend the next three years surviving a number of, overcoming a number of problems like running out of money. They accidentally murdered somebody and, um, uh, and they lay out this chain of triangles from north to south uh, using mountain tops as the stations on which they place them, their quadrant, the, the, the instrument they're using to measure angles on these triangles. And they, after, after three years of doing this, they're, they're nearing the southern end of the proposed chain. They've nearly measured three degrees of latitude, and from this they're going to compute the precise length on the ground of one degree. But the mountains, unfortunately, are getting progressively more remote and this is a problem because uh, where the mountains are packed together and remote, they have great trouble uh, placing signals, as they call them, on mountain tops that could be seen from other mountain tops. Um, because without you know GPS or pre-existing accurate maps, it's very difficult to work out in advance exactly where you're going to set up your survey station. So they'd repeatedly go up a mountain top and find the signals on the, the, the peak they were trying to measure the angle to had been blown down or stolen by locals for the for its, for its timber and canvas. So they start again. So eventually on April the 17th, they or by mid-April, they, they've nearly completed all the difficult peaks. They've nearly survived. And then comes a peak called Sinus Aguin, um, which they climb on April the 17th, um, 1739. And they've nearly finished. Uh, it's a very high remote peak. And they get caught by one of the characteristic Andes storms that sweeps up out of nowhere. And I've been in them. They're, they're ferocious. They're very cold, very high winds, big gusts. And... Uh, the tent gets smashed to pieces. They they'd commissioned a special kind of expedition tent that had made on the way out. Great big thing. That gets smashed to pieces. They put up another tent. That gets smashed to pieces. Uh, the local helpers who they've employed as porters to both bring food up to them at these remote camps and to help them find a way, they desert. They, they've had enough, quite understandably. Um, you know, hypothermia, they're not, they're not properly equipped to, to deal with storms. And the the local people in the Andes were well aware of that these storms were often fatal. And that what you don't do is just sit on a mountaintop waiting them to blow out. You go straight down to lower altitudes. But the scientists had to stay at the top because they hadn't completed their, their measurements. So a third tent gets destroyed and they're really hanging on by the skin of their teeth. Do you think this is the moment um, of maximum crisis? 
during like kind of this mountainous expedition? A fatality at that point could have been really disastrous. Um, all it would have taken would have been for one of them to slip over a precipice or fall into a ravine or get lost and die of hypothermia. And, and of course, losing, you know, with that passing, you'd lose notebooks, uh, equipment, scientific instruments and that. Somehow they persevered. They got the measurements and they, and they appeared out of this storm and the villagers in Kanyar who had been praying for them were completely gobsmacked. They could not believe their eyes that these Europeans had come down from the mountain out of this storm and they were still alive. They could have packed up, but they didn't. They yeah. just kept going. Um, and they managed to complete, even after that horrendous storm with all our equipment smashed, they kept the survey going and completed it uh, yeah. uh, later it's, that year. It really speaks to this... Um... I don't know, the, the human spirit in some ways, but it connects as well with this tradition within science uh, at that time of just how far people were willing to go to put their bodies. I mean, Newton himself would an experiment on himself, you know, in mm. ways that were quite dangerous. And if you've read the uh, Richard Holmes's uh, Age of Wonder, or even mm. later on, there's lots of people uh, who do self-experimentation with drugs and so on. This long tradition of of science and peril running close by, but this seems like a real moment of danger. And when you um, think about it in terms of um, mountain climbing in the early 18th century without any good protective gear to, um, to protect them and without any real understanding of the effect of altitude on the human body, it does become quite something, doesn't it? What kind of, do you know, did you manage to work out what kind of, clothing they had in 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 this uh environment yeah there were i mean it, there are odd references they were basically wearing local andean wools your, your classic poncho is, is is what was commonly worn and cloaks they had uh they had leather footwear um but they were not well equipped and um uh and by modern standards um and were among other things, always one of the greatest hazards when they're up in the mountains was getting lost um, because they they didn't have accurate large scale maps. You, you know, mm. nowadays you can navigate either with GPS or if you've got a large scale ordnance survey map in Britain, you can navigate to within 10 metres just using a handheld compass. Well, they didn't have large scale accurate maps, so they, they were absolutely dependent on local guides shepherds or whoever who would show them the the secret routes up and down these mountains so if they got separated from the guides they're in dead trouble and there were several occasions when uh most kind of graphically described by one of the team members uh, my hero kind of maverick called la condamine who is a great friend of voltaire's and uh la condamine actually you mentioned newton doing experiments on, on himself la condamine eventually died um, in his bed, not very comfortably, back in Paris. He survived the expedition, but he died because he subjected himself to, to an experimental hernia operation. <laughs> so, you know, so classic example of what you're talking about. You know, I mean, their curiosity could be fatal. Um, but La Condamine, on one of the times he was, uh, he recorded in great detail, he'd, he'd tried to climb, really, he'd been up it many times already, a mountain called Pichincha, the Vesuvius of Quito. And um, he got caught in a terrible storm. His guide turned around and went back down. He was on his own. Uh, he he had his he, all he had was a, the clothes he stood up in and a mule, and he he became so cold overnight. Um, because actually the real risk, as you know, as many mountaineers will know, particularly in Britain, is that if if you get soaked to the skin, 
and then you get cold, um, it is really, really difficult to get through the night. And that's exactly what happened to to Lacondamine. And he, he ended up, um, he couldn't sleep, of course. He, he, he managed to find a, a clump of the very, the, the tall, wiry gr- grass that grows on the mount, the Paramo on the, on the mountainsides in, in what's now Ecuador, where they were. And um, put himself on top of that for a bit of insulation, but he became so cold in the night that he had to urinate on his own feet to stop them freezing solid. And that was a kind of quite a, an intelligent thing to do. Would have got him through another twenty minutes probably before they then started freezing solid again. And but he was in such a terrible state that by the time the um, dawn came, because of course without a torch, he had no electric torches, so he couldn't move at night. His only recourse to survival the next morning was to descend the mountain. And fortunately, he he found a local hut, staggered inside, and was revived in front of a fire. And then amazingly, you know, classic example of what you're talking about, Peter. He he went back to Quito, um, got some new gear and set off again the next morning and climbed the mountain um, as if, you know, it was just like a... <laughs> I, like your description, uh, I like your description of fatal curiosity. I think that would be a good uh, title for another book, maybe, about this whole, uh, you know, kind of tradition. But uh, but yes. you did say before that you'd, you'd been travelling and walking in the Andes. Hmm. Is there anything from your own personal experience that kind of sheds light on what they encountered? Because it, it seems, I mean, I've not, I've not been to South America. I've not, not been to the Andes, but the weather systems there must be quite sudden and very, you know, kind of difficult to enjoy. Is that right? Yes. I mean, you've got, you've got a number of things working against you. You've got sudden changes of weather. Um, you've got altitudes, so thin air. And you've got very low nighttime temperatures. And uh, those three things combined can, can really throw you. And actually, when I was there, so this is um, the early 80s, um, on this particular trip I think you're referring to, um, there weren't even accurate maps. I had no, no maps. And rather foolishly, I, was, I, I, I suggested to my then girlfriend, um, now my wife, that, that we... Uh, do a three or four day mountain trek through the Andes. Um, I had got a compass, but but not a map um, because there weren't there weren't any available. And um, and and food was quite hard to come by. We didn't have a tent, so I bought two plastic bin bags from a hardware store in a village. And that and so we we're going to sleep inside these bin bags, but which indeed is what we did. But it it was so cold that that uh you know you can't really sleep through the night um mm-hmm. in a bin bag in the andes um and they were full no, of ice, have, um, i'm surprised she married you actually yeah, well yeah yeah, yeah listen, exactly what it wasn't a, it wasn't a very <laughs> <laughs> interesting you know, interesting like, uh well i suppose after that then everything else will seem quite straightforward in a way but the well there was one of a one of a question i just wanted to reconcile before we move on because it's so interesting we did touch on it before but it, it, it goes back to this technical business of triangulation, which is what they were essentially doing and what was driving them up to these uh, observation points. And um, as far as, as I just wanted to describe it, so it's kind of vivid to the listener, it, it involves having this initial baseline and then taking points of triangulation, which then taper out in a kind of jigsaw puzzle across space. And uh, that's it really, isn't it? In a nutshell, exactly. You've got a Euclidean uh, trigonometry tells you that um, if you've got the length of one side of one triangle, um, you can work out the uh, the lengths of the other two sides by measuring the internal angles, which of course all add up to 180 degrees. So using very simple ancient trigonometry, they 
they decided to lay out a virtual chain of triangles over a distance of more than 200 miles, which would span more than three degrees of latitude. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but to, to measure the angles, uh, uh, the internal angles of these triangles, they could only do that if they used high points, because of course you've got to be able to see the point that you're trying to measure, measure between, the two points you're trying to measure between with your quadrant. So that meant using mountain peaks. Well, um, triangulation had been described really frequently and, and as a well-used method of, of cartographic surveying. In fact, Gemma Frisius in the Low Countries had first described it in the early 1500s. When, and he, he said what you do is climb to the top of church towers and, and, and measure the angles between adjacent church towers and lay your triangles out like that. Well, yeah. that's all very well in a flat as a pancake land like the Low Countries, but... Yeah. In the high Andes, you know, church towers are ridiculous. So they used mountain tops, which were much, much further apart. So what they would do is to erect a, what they called a signal um, on the mountain top, uh, a lime painted triangle of timber and canvas. Uh, after a while, they switched to using white tents because the uh, pyramids kept getting blown away. Um, and then they'd, they'd measure the, the angle using a quadrant between two peaks with the white little dot. The, all they would be able to see through the telescope would be two minute white dots. So you had to have absolutely clear weather. And then after many years of laying out all these triangles, they could use simple trigonometry to, to calculate the length of every side of all the triangles and therefore the overall length of the chain of triangles. Mm, it's a wonderful thing just from that initial um, baseline. And um, I think it's just, it was worth clarifying that because um, this was obviously the great driver that made them climb the mountains. Let's move on to your second scene, um, which is not long after. Do you want to take us to that? Because we were in April, on the 17th of April before. Where are we now? And yes, so April April 17th, 1739, we're, we're, we're stuck on top of a peak called Sinus Aguin with our tent smashed to pieces. Um, three weeks later, they're on the next peak, um, a much lower peak, um, called Buran and um, the weather is appalling. Uh, it, 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 the, the cloud is too low to, to be able to see um, the, the peaks they've got to measure the angles between. So Lacondamine, who is this maverick friend of Voltaire's and probably uh, the, the, the most, um, to my mind, fascinating of, of, of the French academicians, decides that um, He's going to fulfil a long-held curiosity and undertake uh, a, the first, effectively, the first European survey of an Inca site, um, a, a site that had been constructed during the time of the Inca Empire, because he can see it from this this awful peak they're stuck on. It, it's a, it's not many miles away. It's on a it's on a rib of upland between two ravines. He can see the ruins. He knows it's Inca site because the local people call it. Uh, the Inca walls. Uh, so rather than just stay in the tent, you know, for yet another day in the cloud and the rain, he uh, goes with uh, his companion, um, on, rides on mules across the valley to Inca Pirca, as it's now known. It's, it's probably the most famous, in fact, it is the most famous Inca tourist site in Ecuador now. And he conducts this incredibly accurate, detailed survey of this temple fortress complex um, and it's absolutely fascinating because you know he's he's bringing his geodesy that's been devised for measuring enormous spans of the earth's surface you know they're measuring 
200 miles of the Andes very, very accurately. But in, in this occasion, he's measuring sort of 200 meters of archaeology. Um, incredibly carefully, he draws sketches uh, and, uh, and, and, and maps it, takes the measurements. And then he becomes so intrigued by Incapirca that the next time the clouds cover the mountain and they can't see to do the, um, the survey, he, he rides back to Incapirca again to con continue the, the measurements. And then he writes a paper that becomes really quite widely circulated back in France and is, is celebrated now for being uh, a groundbreaking Inca survey. Um, and one of the kind of, uh, he, he describes it with quite excitement in his journal going over there, quite a lot of excitement. And one of the asides he makes, which sort of brought me up um, with a start, is that he sees a local farmer dismantling the Inca temple, removing the stones from the Inca temple to build his farm. I mean, amazing. No, I mean, to actually have, to have witnessed the destruction. So, you know, it was a first-hand account of how these great Inca temples and fortresses uh, disappeared from the landscape, because there are many, many, many of them that have almost that have gone completely. They just don't exist. And the stones have been recycled. Because as you know, I mean, the Inca stonework was unparalleled. Um, it, it was unmortared. It was uh, it fitted together so snugly that you wouldn't be able to push a knife blade between the stones um, and they're all beveled. Um, the geometry is perfect. This particular temple complex is oriented so that the sun would shine into an inner chamber during the solstices. solstices. And um, so it was a, the, 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 that I, I, I chose May the, May the 20th, 1739, because the survey of Inca Pirca, um, was one example of their sort of extracurricular enthusiasms that all all members of the expedition pursued through through the whole decade. So they 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 looked into quinine as a cure for malaria. They did many experiments on gravity. They made the first European description of rubber. Uh, described the use of balsa wood for rafts and boats. Um, there were just all of these curiosities were were carefully noted in their in their notebooks, and and many of them were written up for the French Academy when they got back to Paris. Yeah, it's, it it is absolutely quintessential of that Enlightenment sensibility that you wouldn't kind of put your feet up and have a day's rest. You'd kind of do something else if, if the opportunity exactly. if the opportunity exactly. arose, and that's it's just so striking. When I mean, I've written about Joseph Banks, who in a way mm. is a like kind of an echo of um, La Condamine in a, in a way, because he was always like eyes open, always looking out with no moment for kind of internal reflection as we kind of have in the 21st century where we're kind of in, in interior sensibility, really. Um, but they're like so interested in the outside world and how um, this angle might rise or how this... Um, might fit together with that. Bank, Banks is a, is a he's an extraordinary character. I mean, he, he and, is, but uh, uh, there's shades, aren't there? There's shades of similarity between the two of them, and yeah. but they both kind of belong to this, this you know, like kind of desire to, oh, I don't know, just use up every moment with um, something which is productive observation, and um, and 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 that's really striking but but also to go along on may may the 20th 1739 would be quite fun because you're you're essentially although we are part of this great enlightenment project you are rubbing up against another great history the history of the incas which is fading perhaps at that point and and i think that's the magic of this scene isn't it 
It is. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to underestimate how intoxicated Europeans were by by the Incas, um, because, of course, there'd been a number of very detailed accounts brought back by the conquistadors in the 16th century about the, you know, the conquest of the, the, the Inca Empire, and they're, they're unbelievably brutally. And they, indeed, the Incas had brutally conquered an earlier empire. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a saga of episodic bloodshed. But so the, the, the but for Europeans of the eighteenth century, um, you know the the one thing that everybody knew on every street corner about the Incas was their fabulous wealth. You know the gold, the jewelry, the um, the, the the great hoards that had been hidden by Atahualpa when the, when the conquistadors came over the horizon. There were there were meant to be enormous stashes of treasure all over the Andes. Mm. And well, there's something that's important to note at this point, um, which connects both of our first two scenes. Is that there was of course, this core of uh, European explorers or expedition members, but they were supported by this larger apparatus of indigenous people from the locale, weren't they? Which, um, they which were. Is, it's something you write about in the book. Yes, I. Uh, it, it's it's a very bleak absence because they're not. Uh, ever named and yet we know we know that the you know if, if you're going to if you're going to carry a quadrant and food for three weeks and um barometers telescopes compasses and all that to the top of a a, a mountain um in the andes then you're going to have to have a lot of port a lot of people to help you get up there and, and there are references in the in the journals to to porters being used to local guides being used and so on we never learn their names um and and they're and, and they're paid. They 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 are paid. Um, and indeed, there are references to them being paid over the going rate, simply to motivate them to help. Um, but on many occasions, they they bailed out or just refused to help. Um, so they weren't desperate to be subjected to the you know the the, the vicissitudes of mountaineering. And um, and of course, this was also at the height of the slave trade and. Mm. Um, uh, several of the expedition members had their had bought slaves in the Caribbean on the way out to Peru, but again, these individuals are not named, and they 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 they're barely mentioned um, mm. because the 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 there was a there was a sort of aggrandizement, a, a heroic self image at the time that science was pushing that um that these the academicians from Paris were achieving this on their own that this was their their route to fame and fortune and that in a way the local helpers without whom they couldn't operate it at all were actually slightly in the way in terms of the narrative yeah. um so they they don't make it into the journals uh, aside from being enumerated now and again and there's one. There's only one one slave who gets mentioned by name, a man called Ranger, and um, and he, interestingly enough, he 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 picks up so much knowledge about cartography, about map making during the expedition that he becomes when he he's eventually released on his own island, um, what is now what became Haiti. Uh, he he became the the surveyor, the island surveyor. So he he came back, if you like, in a in a rate with raised social standing. But um, yeah, it, it, it's it's difficult. I I really struggled with it. I yeah, I didn't know how. I think it's one of these things that we all um, who write in about the history of science, and it might be that you know, women in science in the nineteenth century or 
you mm. know, kind of indigenous peoples in centuries before that. But one thing's absolutely for sure that this was a logistical challenge that would not have been possible without um, considerable, you know, kind of support from porters, as you said before. And I think it's just a, it's it's one of those parts of the story we can't really. Um, expose it too much you know because it's not written it's there it's in the margins but it's 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 certainly a case and, and a point isn't it mm, yeah and, and i I've, I've had first-hand experience of of working with local experts local people in mm. you know, you know I, I made a long horse trek through the hindu kush mountains in afghanistan during the war and you know, there's no possibility i could have done that without the two mm. afghan horsemen i was with i mean not a chance i'd have i'd have been a goner in five minutes Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colourgraph.co. At colourgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colourisation work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colourised photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Such a fashion. And this is this is where history often takes us to nowadays, but we have to keep moving. And we've got one more scene to squeeze in. And we're going to move a little bit further through uh, 1739 where are we going to go to you for your third and final scene please we're going to the end of august august the 29th in uh, they call it the city of cuenca but really it was more of a town um, and it's the annual fiesta so they've completed at last this epic triangulation survey they've measured all the triangles they need to and uh, they think all they've got to do now is take uh, a number of accurate astronomical observations um, that that could have been accomplished in a few weeks. In fact, it took many years more. So, but that's to jump ahead. It's August 29th, they've got to Cuenca. They're in a very celebratory mood because they've all survived the mountains except for one man who died of disease. So there's 11 left. Um, they've made it to Cuenca and it's fiesta time. But um, this disparate dozen of the Enlightenment had a habit of of uh, sabotaging their own expedition whenever they had the opportunity. And on this occasion, one of their number, the surgeon, Seneg, seemed to have been having a relationship with a local woman who had just been jilted by her her lover, who was uh, uh, in the local civic authorities. And one thing led to another, and the two men ended up having an argument in the square. They were both drunk, and they both drew their, their, their pistols and fell over into the gutter before managing to fire them. But then a couple of days later at the, at the fiesta... The French surgeon spots his adversary over in the in the stands and um, cut a long story short, uh, uh, an altercation kicks off and uh, it is in the bullring. So you've got a drunken Frenchman, you know, waving his pistol around in the bullring. 
the militia are called and a hundred armed men rush into the bullring with pikes and so on and, and see a Frenchman. They, 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 everybody in the bullring knows exactly who he is because you know, the scientists have been fairly notorious for misbehaving. Uh, and they chase him out of the ring, um, uh, but he is determined not to go. So he's, he's waving his cutlass and he, he gets uh, slashed in the hand, drops his pistol and then gets stabbed in the spleen with a with the long sharp blade that's used to dispatch the bull um and over the next 3 days he bleeds to death so the murder of the expedition surgeon in a sense it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been although it's obviously a tragedy for him um it wouldn't have impeded the the scientific aims of the expedition had La Condamine, the, the maverick, uh, not being his executor and close friend. And Le Condamine took the murder so personally that it distracted him from science for the next two or three years. And he got involved in epic uh, legal battles with the Spanish authorities to try and bring the murderers to justice. Um, in fact, they, they described it as a full-on riot. It wasn't just the murder of one yeah. man. Uh, all it's... of the scientists had to run for their lives through the streets. Yeah, it's high drama. It's like an Almodovar film kind of <laughs> at, the, at the end. And and um, you you realise when everyone's getting drunk and having affairs and, you know, kind of arguing at fiestas. And it's, it's quite combustible, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. They, they, they've, they've all got trigger fingers. Um, and, uh, and, and, and part of that's because, um, well, La Condamine was a war veteran himself. Both are two Spanish lieutenants. There were two Spaniards and 10 Frenchmen initially. They, they were, they had, they, although they were very young, just 19 and 22 when they left Spain, they'd both, they'd, they'd both been at war themselves and were called away to war during the expedition. So, you know, it was, a, it was, a, it was an era of, you know, problems being resolved with a sword and a pistol. Um, and, um, but having said that, um, you know, I've, I've probably overplayed that a bit in, in, the way, in, in the way we've been talking over the last few minutes because there are members, other members of the expedition were very keenly aware of the need for diplomacy. And for all of their faults, you know, and in particular Condamine's faults, you know, he, 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 won, he did make a trip the whole way to Lima to, um, to meet the Viceroy and to smooth things over and make sure that the expedition could proceed and to gather funds and so on. So they all knew that they had to work with the Spanish authorities and paradoxically, the uh, on the expedition, it wasn't so much the French who were working against the authorities, but the two Spanish members of the expedition who were compiling a secret dossier on human rights issues in the Spanish colonies. They'd been told to do that by the government in Seville. And um, the report wasn't published for long, long after they died, but their, their written report um, is now available. It's absolutely fascinating. It's quite a layered scene. That, isn't it? it is very layered, exactly. Like, you know, watching everybody else. I mean, yeah. I say if we we could be there as well, but I don't know what um what what effect to British people would have in that. It'd be probably uh, too much <laughs> for, for, for yeah. the culture to bear. I think we'd be in trouble as well. But it's um yeah, it's it's just fascinating. Um, this idea of a fiesta in Cuenca. Um, could I just like do a little bit of geography because they always talk about um, this is in modern day Ecuador. Um, mm. That's right, isn't it? But absolutely, um, yeah. Back then, they talk about it as being part of Peru. Is that correct as well? Is that how the geography was um, realised back then? Yes. So the, the, there were more than one viceroyalty in South America. The viceroyalty of Peru was enormous and stretched um, right the way down the coast of, of 
what is now Ecuador and South America, and also a long way inland um, over the Andes Mountains to the uh, headwaters of the Amazon. So it was a huge territory, um, and it was divided up in a very uh, efficient colonial manner into um, into local departments, local districts that were all run by local headmen, invariably corrupt. Um, and you couldn't, you, you, it was rather like um, uh, you almost had to, not have, you, they had to have a Spanish passport to travel there at all, um, but they had to have permission from each of these little uh, local uh, heads to move through their territory as well. So it was it was quite moving around. It was quite complicated because uh, you couldn't move in what was then South America through the Viceroyalty of Peru, whose whose capital was was Lima. It's where the the Viceroy actually was based, um, which was a long way. It's about six weeks riding south of Quito, so a long you know a long yeah. way south. If you wanted to go and have a chat to Viceroy, very difficult journey too. You, so you had to you had to, but you had to have the the diplomatic connections to or to operate, and bearing in mind that at local level you've already alluded to it, Peter, that the local people had no understanding of Enlightenment science. So what they saw were a bunch of of, of pale skinned Europeans hunting around in the mountains using strange instruments almost certainly, as they believe, looking for Inca gold. So they, everybody just assumed they were treasure hunters, which, of course, you know, uh, and treasure hunters were not, you know, the, the favourite flavour um, in the Andes at the time. And um, uh, it's one of the reasons that there are so many misunderstandings. In fact, Lacondamine, at the end of, uh, he eventually, at the end of the expedition, after 10 years, he he decides to, <laughs> in characters, he's a wonderfully exuberant, uh, madman really rather than just do the simple thing and take a ship back from uh, the port of Lima Calau back to Europe he decides to descend the entire length of the Amazon on a homemade balsa raft but on, on the way over the Andes to get in his raft a, a group of assassins are sent out to kill him for all the trouble he's been causing over the uh, chasing chasing the people in uh, the, the, the authorities in Cuenca about the murder of his friend uh, but luckily, by chance, he'd just gone on an alternative route. So the assassins missed him and he went straight past without knowing um, and didn't find out till later. But Goodness so, yeah, there were there were, you know, he many times he, he may not have made it and as all of them, uh, you know, well, two of them didn't make it. One of disease, one of murder. Mm. Well, I should ask you then uh, the obvious question is that the what was the success, the ultimate success of the expedition? Was it what they did? They achieve what they hoped to in um, defining the shape of the globe. Yeah, they came. They came back with a definitive number. And um, while they while they'd been in South America on the equator, another French expedition set off to the Arctic, uh, north of the Gulf of Bothnia, and measured the length of one degree of latitude there, uh, which caused great alarm to the the mission in South America because they thought they'd been bounced. But actually, the length of the survey they did, which covered three degrees, was so much more accurate. And it was also on the equator, where, um, as they discovered, the Earth does indeed bulge, as Newton had, had theorised. So they came back with a precise number. They proved that the Earth had indeed got a, a bulging waist, that it was kind of pumpkin-shaped, um, and that it didn't taper towards the poles. It was oblate, an oblate sphere. 
Um, and so in, in the abstract sense, the mission was entirely successful. Uh, they, what they did also was to make some progress towards measuring the actual curvature of the Earth at the equator, which is also quite important, not just the overall shape, but the actual curvature. But then they came back with all this other information too on, on rubber and quinine and platinum and archaeology and human rights and so on. And I think that was the true story. Um, and in, in a sense, the geodesic number was was a, a bit of a byproduct of something much grander, which was a, a collaborative international scientific expedition um, yeah. that we need so desperately now. You know, I mean, the pandemic could not have been... We couldn't have come up with solutions to this pandemic without international scientific collaboration. And this was the world's first. Um, yeah, and, uh, and, and, and that's one thing when we reflect on 18th century science, that um, despite it being a century full of wars, as you know, the, the first world war in a way, with the Seven Years War and, and all the others that followed, um, there was a lot of collaboration between the, the Academy in Paris and the Royal Society in Britain. And, you know, this kind of great network of, of, of scientists that um, that was envisaged. So it is something for us to think about today. But I do like, I was just looking over at the subtitle of your book and I'm, I'm appreciating the pun of the astonishing <laughs> adventure that shaped the world. What a wonderful pun that is. Exactly. I've got one last question now before um, we let you back to 2021. If you could um, bring back a memento, tangible object, something to remind you of our discussion about 1739, if you could have it with you, what would you like? Well, I don't know whether for certain Le Condamine had it with him in 1739, but he had a notebook stolen um, uh, in the year before he came back, 1744. uh, and it was a notebook describing the volcano Pichincha. And I'd love to have a flick through that. It was stolen from his room in Quito. But if you won't allow me that, because I can't be convinced he had it with him in 1739, then I'll settle for the quadrant that he definitely had on top of Sinusaga and the peak that he got smashed by the storm on. Um, so the quadrant, this this incredible device that can oh, be both yeah. used for measuring the angles between peaks but also the height of objects like mountains by and probably axis. an object that was in daily use almost throughout yeah. the expedition it was just yeah. intensively used wasn't it and it, um yeah. they'd be quite lost without it sorry for another one but the, the, the you know an essential thing so a really really good choice oh i've enjoyed this this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation about a bit of history which i should know more about but i Feel like i've filled in a bit of a gap um latitude really really gallops along um as a narrative you start with the the ship sailing out of france and we're then in the caribbean we're then in south america and all the time it's it's kind of high octane stuff so i'm sure it will be eagerly gobbled up by readers thank you very much nicholas crane for coming on travels through time that's very kind of you peter thank you That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Nicholas Crane about his new book, Latitude, which captures a great moment of enlightenment, exuberance. It's a fabulous story too, of course. Remember, we are giving away a couple of hardback copies of the book, so do go to our website at tttpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter if you want to be in with a chance of winning one. Thank you for listening today. We'll be back as ever next Tuesday. Until then, goodbye.